And if you have your Bibles, let's turn them now to Matthew chapter 26. I'm going to, in a moment, read from Matthew 26, verses 36 to 46. I think about every year I read to you all in a sermon a quote from A.W. Tozer. So if you've been around our church for the last seven years, you've probably heard this at least six or seven times. So this is like my annual catechism of Embassy Church. And this quote comes from one of Tozer's books about worship. And if you don't know, A.W. Tozer is a former pastor in the Chicago area during, I think, the 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, 1950s, 60s, and 70s. And he said this, which I found to be extremely prophetic, like way ahead of his time and extremely relevant to us. Tozer says, in my opinion, the great single need of the moment is that light-hearted, superficial religionists would be struck down with a vision of God, high and lifted up, with his train filling the temple. It seems the holy art of worship has passed away like the Shekinah glory passing from the tabernacle. And as a result, we are left to our own devices, forced to make up for the lack of spontaneous worship by bringing into the church countless cheap and tawdry activities to hold the attention of the people in the church. Recently, this last couple weeks, I've been reading a book about pastors and about the transitions that pastors have experienced throughout the history of the church, starting with Augustine, to then Thomas Beckett, to then Jonathan Edwards, to then eventually landing with today's modern pastor Rick Warren, and a, and a few other people interspersed through that. And in this book on the pastoral ministry, the author says, American congregational life, particularly in the suburbs, hey, that's us, American suburbs, feels like there is a constant ebb and flow of disengagement to re-engagement, back to disengagement with the Word of God. Sometimes this pattern is expected during certain times of the year. Some people may disengage every April to October because the weather is nice and they can go out and golf on Sunday mornings. Sometimes this disengagement is more sporadic and will happen even within the worship service itself. So the author asks, how often does the mind of the average church member wander while you're in church? And you feel very little impact when the word of God is being read or preached. Perhaps this is one of the main reasons that preaching today has had to turn to self-help or humor. Because we are so easily disengaged with the word of God. And humor, more specifically, becomes a direct switch for the preacher. A pastor can flip humor on and engage the people because laughter is a sure sign that people are listening to you and are with you. 
And it's unsurprising that Jonathan Edwards spent almost no time at all trying to be funny, while many preachers today see it as essential. Put both of those quotes together. Does that at all explain any observations you've had with the modern American church experience? Cheap, tawdry, superficial, lighthearted, filled with jokes and humor. I was listening to a passage preached on what I'm about to read to you, and half of the sermon felt like he was trying to tell jokes and the congregation was laughing. And I'm like, we're about to read in Matthew's gospel one of the most holy and sacred passages of scripture. I'm not saying you can't ever laugh during this sermon, but it is not a joking matter. And the problem is, is I think that too many people come to church and they're looking for self-help or a pastor who's entertaining instead of the word of God, the glory of God, and the beauty of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so instead of giving you Jesus, let me just entertain you for an hour or less. Because who knows how long you can stay engaged. And what I've tried to say for the last seven years is that Embassy Church does not primarily want to cater to your American and modern sensibilities. We want to give you God's word and give you a big slab of meat and say, chew on this. Instead of feed you with a spoon like a little baby day after day. And so I want to read you a passage, a passage that I think, in my estimation, is one of the most holiest, sacred of passages in the Bible. Not as if some passages, you know, aren't holy at all. But we are entering into holy ground. And if this can't keep your attention, then you found the wrong church. <laughs> There's plenty of them that will entertain. I seek no attempt to entertain you this morning and, Lord willing, next week. Let's read it first. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter... And the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and he prayed, My father, if this cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. Again he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. 
And then he came to the disciples and he said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The big idea of this passage is that Jesus wants you and I to know something. Jesus wants you to know something. And I say Jesus as opposed to Matthew, even though this is the biography of Jesus written by Matthew. Here in this passage, we have a unique story because it is told from the perspective of Jesus, not primarily from the eyewitness testimony of his disciples. The story is from Jesus. So Jesus wants you to know something. Look at the details again, starting in verse 36. The disciples are sitting there. He's, He's telling them, sit right here, and then I'm going to go over there to pray. Then in verse 37, it says that he then took from the disciples, at this point it seems as if a group of at least 11, Judas is not here, he takes from the 11, three, Peter, and then the sons of Zebedee, which is James and John. So Peter, James, and John, who many people have observed is that inner circle. The same three that went up the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17. Those three come with him. And then look at verse 38. He, he talks to these three and he says to them, presumably, if you're following along, Peter, James, and John, he says, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Remain here. So you stay here. You guys are over there. Peter, James, and John, you're here. And then he goes a little farther, verse 39. Therefore, all of the disciples are kept at a distance from what is about to unfold. This is a private conversation with the Father and the Son. And this is why I say we are on a unique holy. That's what the word holy means. Unique, set apart. We are on holy ground. We, as we get to read this story, can eavesdrop on a prayer of Jesus during the darkest hours of his life. But that begs a question. How did Matthew even get this story in the first place? How do we know what Jesus prayed, considering this is just Jesus by himself with the Father praying? And there's three possibilities. One is just to assume that Jesus told them. He rose again from the dead. Spoiler alert, Jesus dies, but he rises again from the dead. And he spends at least 40 days, it seems, from Acts chapter 1, teaching his disciples a whole bunch of things about himself and the Old Testament. And so we can presume or assume that Jesus told the disciples what happened during this prayer time. That's easy enough. I'm good with that description. And then I think if you go with that, that's my favorite of the three possibilities then that means Jesus wanted his disciples and therefore he wanted us to know something. He he wanted us to know what happened in the garden. And he made sure they knew this intimate, holy moment. A, A second explanation could be that Peter, James, and John, who are closer than the other disciples, but still far enough, before they dozed off and fell asleep, heard the gist of it because he was praying out loud. And as we're about to see from Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, the author 
presumes Jesus was praying loudly with loud cry and therefore they could have heard him and especially many of us we might be used to praying that's a little bit more private the praying that we did earlier in the service where I said you know close your eyes bow your head have some individual prayer time this is an individual prayer time but it was most likely out loud which would have been a common custom, speaking and praying out loud. And it's intense, as we can hopefully gather from the details, and so it's not hard to assume, especially with the writer of Hebrews, Jesus could have been heard. And so they just recorded the tidbits they heard before they fell asleep. A third and maybe less likely explanation is that if you read a parallel account in Mark chapter 14, there is a young man who is wearing a linen cloth around his body, and it seems as if he is in the area, in the garden, and then they seized him, and he ran away, taking his linen cloth uh, as they seized him. And so it's it's an ironic story that this young boy is in the garden scene, and then he runs away naked. But uh, some speculate then that he's the one that later told the disciples, like I said, I think the first one probably is the most likely. Either way, Jesus wants you to know something. We have a story from Jesus' perspective. But what does he want you to know? What is the purpose of this story? Why does Jesus want to make sure his disciples and you know this event? I think that because this is holy ground and it's special and unique, there's at least four things. Jesus wants us to know that he is a human. Jesus wants us to know the meaning of his death. Jesus wants us to know how we can pray like him. And Jesus wants us to know the importance of companionship for our discipleship. I think all four of these things are equally relevant and important and worthy of you to stay engaged with the word. But that's a lot of things. So we will call this week's sermon part one. And I want to cover the first two, because I think they play off of each other, and I want to cover the next two, the the third and fourth thing, next week, Lord willing. So this week, Jesus wants us to know that he is a human, and that through learning about his humanity in this passage, we learn about the meaning of his death. Next week, Lord willing, we will see that Jesus wants us to learn how to pray and the importance of companionship during our times of sorrow and trial. So let's start with this week's message. Jesus wants us to know that he's a human. He is a human. That was deliberate. Jesus was not a human as in was past tense. Jesus still is a human. The Bible insists That when Jesus was born, as we just celebrated in the Christmas season, he became fully 100% human, just like you and me. And that the humanity of Jesus is just as necessary as the full 100% divinity of Jesus. If you want to know Jesus, you must know both of these realities. Or as we sang in the opening song of this worship service, come, behold, a wondrous mystery. But many people inside of the church often struggle with this idea. Not necessarily the idea of a church like this, Bible-believing church. We 
don't reject things that are mysterious or supernatural. We believe that God does all whole kinds of things that are beyond our explanation. But what many people inside of our churches, evangelical Christian churches, are the humanity of Jesus. I think in part this is because the people outside of the church struggle the most with the idea that Jesus is God. And so sometimes we overemphasize the divinity, the godness of Jesus to the exclusion or the overemphasis that we miss the humanity of Jesus. And it's interesting when we look at church history, the earliest Christians first struggled with those who would reject the humanity of Jesus, not his divinity. And oh, how the times have turned. So how does this story reveal that Jesus is fully human? And I have three reasons from this story to give you that he is fully 100% human. First, we learn from this story that Jesus is learning how to obey God. He's learning how to obey God, and he is being perfected through this story. Many people will hear these ideas and think, that sounds strange. How can Jesus learn anything? Wasn't he the perfect, sinless, completely obedient son of God? What do you mean he had to learn obedience? A lot of people are just thinking that the time that he was born, he was perfect from the get-go. And I'm using explicit language to say he learned obedience through his suffering, and was then perfected through this learned obedience. And I get this idea from Hebrews chapter 5. Feel free to turn there if you want. Hebrews chapter 5 is going to, I believe, comment on our story, which is why I'm not just quickly jumping to a random Bible passage. This is an extremely relevant Bible passage because it's giving us commentary on our story. And so I want to begin with this idea that Jesus is learning obedience through his suffering, and the writer of Hebrews summarizes our story in Matthew 26 in that manner. Here's the passage, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7, 8, and 9. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. So pause right there in verse 7. And realize that it's first saying that in the days of his flesh, when Jesus was on the earth, when he was a human, he prayed. So what do we have in our text? Jesus is human. He's on the earth and he is praying. And it says he's praying not just any kind of prayer. He's praying loud cries and with tears. And it says he's praying to him who is able to save him from death. And there's the clue. That the writer of Hebrews is thinking about Jesus's specific prayer when he was a human, where he was in intense emotional turmoil, and he's praying specifically that God would save him from death. What else could he be thinking about than this scene in the Garden of Gethsemane? So, I would suggest to you that the writer of Hebrews is thinking about this event, and then he is going to give us some commentary to explain what's going on here. And he says... If you keep reading in verse 7, that Jesus was heard because of his, his reverence or his piety. And we'll speak more about that next week, about the interaction between God and the Father and the prayer. 
But for this week, we're focusing on Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So this is not Phil's idea. I did not come into Matthew chapter 26 and conclude, oh, Jesus learned obedience and became perfected through his suffering as he was praying in the garden. The writer of Hebrews says that. Which means that when Jesus was born, he was not perfect. He needed to be made perfect. He had to learn obedience through his suffering. This is why the writer Luke in Luke chapter 2, 52 says, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man as a teenager. He increased. He had to learn the Aleph Bet, the Hebrew alphabet. He was a little boy. He was a real human. Let that sink in. Behold the wondrous mystery. He was really a man and a teenager and experienced the life, the full life of infant to child, to toddler, to teenager, to young man, to full-grown man. He increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Therefore, the reason you and I might trip and struggle over this language of he was perfected, I thought he was perfect from the day he was born, is because the word perfect means to be fully mature or to reach the end of a goal. It's the word telos. To reach the end goal. So the picture then is Jesus is on a path. When he's born, he's just beginning that path. He is on a path that's going to lead to the mountain called Calvary where he's going to die. When he is born, he is not there yet. And each step along the way, he is going to stay on that path and never once veer from the path. So to say that he's in the middle of his life and that he's not perfected yet does not mean that there's anything lesser about him. It just means he's not arrived at the end goal. And this is what the author of Hebrews, I believe, is referring to when he's saying he is being perfected through his step-by-step, moment-by-moment, hour-by-hour obedience every single day of his 33 years of life. Here in Matthew chapter 26, then, Jesus is at the end of this path. And he needs to finish. And the closer he gets, the harder it is to take another step. And so Jesus is praying to the Father and he is asking, could there be any other way? Is there another way? And the story goes, as we just read, he prays this three times. Father, come on another way and the answer that the father gives is no have you ever prayed and got no or silence Jesus will have to drink the cup that's why it's it's presented the way it is Is there another way? Could there be another way? If there is another way, let's go that way. But ultimately, I want to do your way, God. And so, the answer from the Father is that in order for the cup to pass away, Jesus must drink it. 
he must suffer. In order for him to be fully mature, fully perfected, he must finish this race to the very end and take up his cross in full submission to the Father's will, denying himself even to the point of death, death on a cross. So I believe that this passage, through the little help of Hebrews chapter 5, teaches us Jesus is fully human. And he learned obedience by getting to the very end of his path, looking at what is just around the corner and saying, okay. And he does it anyway. Jesus is being perfected through his sufferings. Second reason why this text teaches us that Jesus is fully human is that he is tempted. He is tempted. Verse 41, Jesus tells to his disciples, Peter, James, and John, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus is praying. He wants his disciples to be praying, and he explains here in verse 41 why he wants them to pray. Because of temptation. So they do not fall into temptation. One of the reasons Jesus' disciples are praying, at least Jesus is praying, we don't know how much the disciples are doing any praying at all other than sleeping, is because of temptation. And then he says this line, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The flesh And the flesh here probably is not the way Paul is using it later on in his writings, that it's some sort of evil as opposed to the will of God, but rather representing the weakness of humanity over against the desires of the Spirit to obey the will of God. The contrast here is about frail humans and the inner self to do the will of God. And so when Jesus uses this word flesh, it seems to be more about humanness. A human body that gets tired and wants to sleep. Have you ever felt that way? Any of you tired right now? Might fall asleep in this sermon. I'm disengaged already. My mind is wandering. I'm human. Unfortunately, Christians today like to use these words from Jesus as an excuse for all of our human shortcomings. Oh, I'm only human. But it's interesting, isn't it, when you look at the context of this story, Jesus is using these words, the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. Not to say, well, duh, you guys are human. He's human too. Jesus is human. And he's using these words not to say, well, everybody's human. But to say, yeah, the human body has weakness and limitations. And so he's exhorting them and encouraging them not to have an excuse for why they can go take a nap, but to be diligent and stay awake. The context of these words is to encourage his disciples to do what? Resist temptation. And I would conclude then that it is in fact the very reason why Jesus is praying three times in the garden. To resist the temptation to get off the path. He's wrestling with the Father, and the way for him to stay on the path is to pray. And this is exactly what we hear from our writer in Hebrews again. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but rather we have one who in every respect has been tempted 
as we are, yet without sin. We have a high priest in the heavens right now, the ascended, reigning, ruling king over all the universe is Jesus, the Christ. He is a human as our representative, not on earth, but in heaven. And this high priest can sympathize with every single one of your temptations and weaknesses because he has been tempted in every way that you are. Do you believe that? I don't necessarily know if everybody does. Because I'm a pastor and I talk with Christians on a regular basis. Several of you, right? And in the midst of those conversations, I hear things like, well, does Jesus really know what it's like to go through this? Because he didn't have TV. He, he didn't know what it was like to be tempted the way I am because he was a man and not a woman. And then you just keep filling in the blank. I'm sure you can imagine and think of a whole bunch of things that like, well, we have this today and Jesus didn't have that. Here's my answer to that thought. It comes from C.S. Lewis. I'm going to summarize and paraphrase. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis is talking about this problem. Well, can Jesus really relate to us? Can he sympathize with us? Has, be, has he really been tempted in every way that we have been? And then C.S. Lewis says that one of those common objections is that, well, he, he's never experienced what it's like to be addicted to something. Because he never sinned. And because he never sinned, he's never felt the, the strength and the pull of that sin. And so he can't sympathize with the, the terrible pull of temptation from an addiction. You see? And C.S. Lewis basically flips the whole script as so often needs to happen when we think this way and project onto God our, our way of thinking. And he doesn't say these exact words, but this is my paraphrase. Jesus can sympathize with us. Can we sympathize with him? And then the illustration Lewis uses is that, remember, he's on a path, right? We have this image of Jesus walking on this path. And I want you to imagine that you're walking outside. And it's not hard to imagine in Chicago, walking outside and the wind starts picking up. And as you walk, it starts getting more difficult. And the, the stronger that the wind starts blowing it, it's like, I don't know if I want to be outside anymore. I'm ready to like go sit down or go take a break or, or just be done this walk. And, and so now I want you to imagine that scene. But as the walk goes on, every step, the wind only gets stronger. The addict, the person who has sinned, they sat down after five steps. They're not just sitting down, they're lying down on the ground so that no wind is covering them whatsoever. There's no resistance at all. They gave in. Jesus keeps stepping every single step as the wind starts getting harder and harder and harder. He never lays down. All the way to the end, you cannot sympathize with that because you have given in. It is the exact opposite. He has known a temptation that you and I could never even dream of experiencing the kind of battle and resistance of that wind in the garden. And in that sense, I would say he can sympathize with all of your temptations, but I'm not so sure we can sympathize with what he went through in this garden and every moment afterwards. And for that reason, I would suggest, again, with a little help of Hebrews and the, the text in 
Matthew 26, verse 41, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus is the fullest human being that has ever walked this earth because he was tempted in every way and much more. But there's one other element of temptation that I think is more abstract than explicit in the text. Look at verse 30. This is outside of our specific passage, but if you look your eyes up to chapter 26, verse 30, it says they sang a hymn and then they went out to where? The Mount of Olives. And then it says in verse 36 that they went to a place, and this word place isn't just random place, it means an estate or a plot of land. So they went to a place called Gethsemane. And what we know from this place is that it's named Gethsemane, which means oil press. Oil press, Mount of Olives. We know from history and geographical kind of studies and things that this place where Jesus is at was filled with orchards for, for, for wine. And this is why it would correspond then that um, John's description of where Jesus is at in John's gospel is that he was in a garden. So if you've ever heard this called the Garden of Gethsemane and you're reading Matthew, you're like, I don't see a garden, it just says place. It's because Jesus was in what was probably an olive garden or an an olive orchard. And this is why I think that's worth mentioning. Jesus is in a garden and he is being tempted. Do you know any stories in the Bible about a man in a garden being tempted by a tree. It's the first story of the Bible. Adam and Eve were told, if you take and eat from this tree, you will die. He explicitly says, obey me and you will live. I believe Jesus wants us to know that he is fully human and that through these temptations, Just like every human temptation, just like Adam in his garden, and you and me. Jesus can sympathize with us. But his temptation was much more. Jesus was told that if he takes from this tree and he drinks this cup, he will surely die. In other words, Adam was told, if you obey me, you will live. Jesus is told as the second Adam, the new representative of a new humanity, if you obey me, then you will die. And Jesus says yes. He does not give in to the temptation. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. He passed the test, the hardest test. It was not easy. Third, and finally about the humanity of Jesus. Jesus wants us to know something. He wants us to know that he's human. And he wants us to know that he's human by explaining and describing for us and his disciples his emotions. Jesus wants us to know that he is fully human, including having a mind, body, soul, a will. In our passage of scripture, look at Verse 37, and talking with him, and taking with him, Peter, and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He began. The sorrow 
was beginning. And this perhaps is alerting the readers to Jesus starting to reveal something that we wouldn't have known otherwise. He's, he's informing his disciples, whether at this moment as he starts talking in verse 38, saying to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. That we now are alerted to Jesus' own emotions and experiences. These are descriptive terms. They reveal not the cause, but rather just the plain reality that Jesus is going through something really hard, and it affects him like a normal human would be affected. The reason I had Sybil read for us earlier in the service Psalm 42 is because it's the exact same phrase used to describe Jesus' turmoil of distress that's used when the psalmist says, Soul, why are you so distressed within? Put your hope in God. And using these same uncommon adjectives, it's not like a commonly used word, this deeply distressed is used here in Psalm 42 to talk about one's soul. And that's the same words you see in Matthew 26. My soul is deeply distressed. And by soul here, I think he's just simply referring to what the psalmist is referring to, the inner person, the inner self. And he is saying that I am feeling deep emotion. This is not some outward show. This is not play acting. I have something going on inside of me that began the moment we started walking in to this garden. And then notice the way that he says, until death. We should probably take this as to mean, I am so sorrowful that it is killing me. The New Testament portrays Jesus here as having human emotions, deep human emotions, needs that you and I have, basic needs and emotions. So, for example, we could see throughout Matthew's gospel and other gospel writers that Jesus, in other places, has moved to pity and compassion, to experience love and affection. Matthew 9.36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion because they were harassed like little helpless sheep without a shepherd. Mark 1.41, he was moved to pity, and he stretched out his hand and touched the man and said to him, I will make you clean. Or Mark 8, 2, I have compassion on this crowd because they have been with me these days and they've had nothing to eat. Or in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you, that you would love each other just as I have loved you. Jesus also experienced feelings of distress, not just in our text in Matthew 26, but Mark 8, 12. He says he sighs deeply in his spirit and he says, why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to them except the sign of Jonah. He becomes angry. In Mark chapter 3, verse 5, he looked around them, and then with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to this man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched out his hand, and it was restored. He experienced joy. In Luke chapter 10, verse 21, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit, and he said, I thank you, God, our Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from these wise and understanding and revealed them to the little children. He gets annoyed. Mark 10, verse 14, when he saw, when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. And then he said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. He was surprised. Matthew 8, 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled, shocked, surprised, and said, truly, I tell you, 
With no one in Israel have I found faith like this Gentile man. The Gentile man, I, I said that, but that's who he's talking about. Jesus had all of these human experiences because he was human, fully human, with a soul, a human psychology, a will, a mind. And like I said, the temptation for many inside the church is to disregard the humanness of Jesus because the speaker that is blasting is Jesus is God. And I think that this results in many of us leading to be on one extreme or the other. We either overemphasize our emotions and that drives the bus. That drives the engine of our life and it, it's, it's what we make all of our decisions based off of. Emotions are ultimate. Or we stuff them. We don't express them. We don't share them. We think that they're bad. And if they're somehow angry or grieved, I can't show those emotions. I have to show that I'm always happy, happy, happy all the time. And this is why church can sometimes be really difficult for people because where is the ups and downs of lament and confession and joy and thanksgiving and that some Sundays are just, they're heavy. And then some Sundays are like, yes, God is good. But what's the modern church? Cheap, tawdry, superficial, don't go too deep. Everything is happy, clappy all the time. To be a human is to be like Jesus and therefore to have emotions, to express those emotions, to share those emotions. He does all of those things in our passage in Matthew 26. And Jesus wants you to know that he is fully human by explaining to his disciples, I am deeply distressed. It's killing me. And the way that authors and commentators have tried to explain and translate this passage is all over the place. And I don't know how many of them are appropriate or not, but it's anything from he's depressed. He is having a panic attack. He is struggling with a horrible, overwhelming experience of not knowing what's going to come knowing what's going to come next, but because of knowing what's going to come next, just feeling overwhelmed. And these are the, the ways that we as Bible teachers try and say, well, what is these words here? And Jesus wants to know, he's a fully human, deeply distressed. But why? Why is Jesus deeply distressed that it's killing him? And it's because Jesus also wants us to know the meaning of his death. When Jesus is here in the garden, do any of you think he seems kind of cowardly? Cowering in the garden, overwhelmed with distress. He's, he's having a panic attack? Oh, I don't know if I can have a category for Jesus having a panic attack. The Roman soldiers are about to come to him. And yet, when we read throughout church history, people that are about to face imminent death, and they know it's coming, they do it singing to their death. Take, for example, a man in India who was skinned alive, and as he looked at the man who was about to do this, he said, you can take off my outer garment today, but today I will be clothed in a new garment. Bold, courageous. But that's not what Jesus is like. Christopher Love, as he was being led to be hung on the gallows, and his wife is in the crowd, she is applauding him and says, today they will sever you from your physical head. 
but they will never sever you from your spiritual head. And he, Christopher, went singing to his death. And this isn't just true of Christians. Many people, as I was reading about this passage of Scripture, wanted to compare and contrast it with Socrates. Socrates was calm and poised before he was supposed to drink a poisonous cup called the hemlock. And it would ruin his insides. And the account goes that he tells everybody around him it's okay. Poised, calm, collected. So was Socrates better than Jesus? Was Jesus' followers more courageous than Jesus himself? And I believe the answer to this question all hinges on two words. This cup. What's the cup? Take this cup from me. Is there any other way? Do we have to do the cup? And there's two ways you can read the cup. First, you can say the cup refers to suffering and death. And that's it. Second way to read it is that it refers to suffering and death as an act of God's judgment and wrath. Now, is it surprising that modern Christians today don't like the second option and prefer to go with the first one? We can't have a God of wrath. We want a God of love. And precisely when you lose a God of wrath, you lose the God of love. It is not just suffering and death. If it is only suffering and death and the cup is only a reference to Jesus' dying, then we have to conclude that Jesus is just another coward. He died with less courage than all the other people I just referenced and the many more. But if the cup is a reference to his suffering and death as the judgment of God being poured out upon him as God's wrath, then this is no ordinary cup. This is not the same cup that Socrates drank. This death was unlike any other of those martyrs' deaths. To compare Jesus' death with anyone else is making the same problem of saying, well, Jesus hasn't experienced the temptations I've experienced. He has. He has gone through a death and a suffering that is unlike anyone else's that has ever lived. Jesus can sympathize with us. Can we sympathize with him? And how do we know, then, that Jesus is referring to this cup as the wrath of God. And this could be an entire sermon, as you might imagine. So to summarize, all through both Old and New Testaments, the cup is used as a metaphor for God's wrath. One passage, Isaiah 52, verse 17. Awake, awake, rise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Seems pretty clear. The cup of his wrath. You who have drained that cup to its dregs, the goblet that makes men stagger. Of all the sons that she bore, there was none to guide her. Of all the sons she reared, there was none to take her by the hand. These double calamities, they have come upon you, and who can comfort you? Ruin and destruction, famine and sword. Who is going to console you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the very head of the street like an antelope caught in the net. They are filled with the wrath of the Lord and the rebuke of your God. It's not hard. Like, really. Just search the cup. Do a little Bible search in Bible Gateway, cup, and start noticing all the references throughout the Bible that cup equals the wrath of God. 
the anger, the indignation, and the judgment that's being poured out on sinners. That leads you to a place where you say, where's comfort? Where's being consoled? Answer, nothing can console you and comfort you if you drink from this cup. And the picture, by the way, is a cup of wine. Strong, alcoholic beverage. This is why he says that the cup is drained to its dregs from the goblet that makes men stagger. It's a metaphorical picture to say that God is going to force you to drink so much that you're wobbly and you fall down. And he sang that to an entire nation. The cup is going to be filled with spices and things that are just going to make it so strong that as it's forced down your mouth, you experience staggered wrath of God. You, O Jerusalem, have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, and you have drained the goblet of God's wrath to its dregs. All the little spices. The other day I was making tea, and I put it in my water bottle, like the thermos kind, and I wanted it to like simmer faster, you know, steep faster, so I shook it up. That was dumb. It broke open the bag. The whole bag was having all the little tea particles throughout the water bottle. That's what the dregs are referred to, like a broken tea bag. The residue, the sludge, not just the liquid contents, but at the very bottom, all the sediments that were making this an awful, bitter cup. So, my friends, Jesus is smelling the aroma, looking around the corner of his path and seeing there's a cup, the cup of God's wrath. Is there any other way? Is there any other way? Is there any other way? And the answer is no. There is no other way. Jesus, in order for him to be our Savior, in order for him to die in our place, he must drink the full cup down to its dregs. And our passage tells us that he did. He said yes, so that you and I could be here. Say yes to Jesus because he said yes to the cup. Or say yes right now to the cup of blessing, the Lord's Supper, and drink with joy because he drank all of our sorrows. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come now in the name of your Son, Jesus, giving you thanks. And as we do so, we know that thanks seems so inadequate. For the amount of anguish and turmoil that you, through your Son, has, have experienced on our behalf. We know that we deserved that cup. We know that it was our sin that filled up that cup to the tippy top with your anger and wrath toward us. But we praise you for sending your Son into the world to be fully human and dying in our place. And we pray that your Holy Spirit will give each and every one of us here faith to put our trust and hope in this reality that Jesus has drank this cup of your wrath 
and not one drop is left so that we could now drink the cup of blessing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.